0: everyone, welcome to TaxCast with Chelsea, where I give you a small dose of interesting tax news and answer commonly asked tax questions. Today we're going to review some of the recent changes that have been passed. First, there's been a one-year delay in 1099K requirements that would have made almost every person using a cash app to receive those payments with a $600 minimum. Also, there have been new retirement rules that have been passed through Congress through the Secure Act 2.0. And I'll highlight a few of those changes. And then lastly, let's review how to maximize qualified education expenses when you're self-employed. You'll see it's better than the average taxpayer. For most taxpayers, the new 1099K rules probably wasn't on their radar. But for those worried about how their cost-sharing reimbursements with friends would be treated, there was some legitimate concern recently. In many of the tax education seminars that I've attended, there was an acknowledgement about the procedural and technical concerns around how to report a 1099K that was only $600 when it reflected merely reimbursements to friends. And then on December 23rd this year, the IRS did go ahead and announce that they're going to delay that threshold of $600 for third-party settlement providers that was supposed to take effect this next tax season. They said in the American Rescue Plan of 2021, it had originally made the filing threshold $600 instead of the original $20,000 issued to each payee on a 1099-K. Also, if you had received 200 or more transactions a year, you were supposed to get a 1099-K. So as part of this, the IRS released guidance on December 23rd outlining that calendar year 2022 will be a transition period for implementation of the lower threshold reporting for the third party settlement organizations, also known as TPSOs, that would have generated the 1099-K for those taxpayers. Just like other transitions and changes going on with the new tax law, the IRS had not been clear on issuing how to file the taxes and show if it was income versus just merely reimbursements. The acting IRS commissioner, Doug O'Donnell, he said that right now, To help reduce confusion during this next 2023 tax filing season, they wanted to provide more time for taxpayers to prepare and understand the new reporting requirements. So many were concerned that their cash apps would now be subject to them cost sharing with friends and family. The IRS said that the law was not intended to track personal transactions, such as cost sharing, but that they were merely trying to find those people that had side hustles that simply hadn't been reported. Under the new law, beginning January 1st of 2023, the TPSOs were required to report these third-party network transactions paid in 2022 with anybody who had received at least $600 or 200 payments. So this is a pretty big change. They also described in Notice 2023-10, that these reported transactions, that they were gonna take time to go ahead and reevaluate how this procedurally would work. So this being said, the TPSOs have had to delineate a business transaction versus a personal. That's what they're gonna have to do. They're gonna have to separate those receiving the payments for goods and services, so those being in business for themselves, versus those simply using the platform as a cash platform. Many people already try to avoid these business accounts already for the mere fact they don't want to pay the transaction fees associated with business accounts. So we may not see much change in the next year of people elected to become businesses so that they can get that lower 1099k, but the platforms might have to be a little bit more savvy in how they collect their data and segregate those to meet the filing requirements. Also, our tax code does require that we report all income, even though we don't receive a 1099. But for many taxpayers, they simply won't report until they receive that 1099-K. So Congress has passed the Secure 2.0 Act of 2022 as part of the 2023 Consolidated Appropriations Act. And President Biden has signed this into law on December 30th. It made 150 pages of retirement changes. Luckily for us, the Senate Finance Committee provided a 19-page summary related to these changes, and I wanted to briefly discuss the changes that I think that would impact the majority of taxpayers. First, remember that the original SECURE Act was passed at the end of 2019, and it changed the RMD date to 72 instead of 70 and a half. And then now, with this new law starting in 2023, retirees can actually wait until age 73 for their RMD and eventually up to 2023, they will move that age to 75. So next year or currently 2023, we're looking at age 73 RMD age. Taxpayers who are wanting to do QCDs, which is those qualified charitable distributions, that age is still 70 and a half, even though the RMD age is 73. Like I've said in the past, this is a great estate planning tool and tax savings tool where you can contribute to charity while at the same time drawing down your IRA and checking off that box saying that you've taken out your RMD. It also allows many to take the standard deduction as well as receive the benefits of donating to charity through their IRA through the QCD vehicle. But remember, they still have to be 70 and a half before they get to take advantage of that tax benefit. The distribution also must go directly from the IRA to the eligible charitable organization and donor advice funds, supporting organizations, and private foundations are not eligible to receive those QCDs. Also, for plan years beginning after December 31st, 2023, so a year from now, in Section 110, the treatment for student loan payments treated as elective deferrals for purposes of matching contributions. So this section is intended to assist employees who have not been able to save for retirement because they're overwhelmed by student debt. And so Congress felt like they were missing out on available matching contributions for retirement plans. This section allows such employees to receive those matching contributions by reason of repaying their student loans. Also in Section 110, it permits an employer to make a matching contribution under a 401k plan a 403B plan, or a simple IRA with respect to the qualified student loan payments. A qualified student loan payment is broadly defined as any indebtedness incurred by the employee solely to pay for qualified higher education expenses of that employee. So it'd be really interesting on how um, these new retirement plans take into effect and how they track those who are making student loan payments for the matching contribution. Under Section 115, withdrawals for certain emergency expenses, they generally are are subject to that 10% penalty that typically applies to early distributions from a tax-preferred retirement account, such as like a 401k or an IRA, unless they already qualify under the exemption rules. Under this section They provide an exemption for certain distribution used for emergency expenses, which are unforeseeable or immediate financial needs related to your personal family emergency expenses. So it's essentially expanded the definition of how to get out of the 10% penalty, basically for family emergency expenses. Only one distribution is permissible per year, and it's only $1,000. So you're talking about $100 of unrealized penalty with this new rule. The taxpayer has the option to repay the distribution within three years, and then no further emergency distributions are permissible during the three-year repayment period unless the repayment occurs. And this section, section 115, is effective for distributions made after December 31st, 2023. So you still have another year before that takes into effect. Under Section 126, there are special rules for certain distributions from long-term qualified tuition programs to Roth IRAs. I really like this new rule because I think so many people invest in kids 529 plans without really realizing whether or not the child will actually go to school and utilize those funds. So this Section 126 amends the Internal Revenue Code to allow for tax and penalty-free rollovers from 529 accounts to Roth IRAs under certain conditions. Beneficiaries of these 529 college savings accounts would be permitted to roll over up to $35,000 over the course of their lifetime from any 529 account in their name to their Roth IRA. These rollovers are also subject to the Roth IRA annual contribution limits, and then the 529 account must have been open for more than 15 years. So this is definitely a long-term planning tool without really knowing what the end looks like. What Congress is saying is that families and students have had concerns over the last few years about these leftover funds being trapped in these 529 accounts unless they take a non-qualified withdrawal and assume a penalty. This has led to hesitating, delaying, or declining to fund those 529s to the level needed to pay for the rising cost of education. In this section 126, they eliminate this concern by providing the family and students with the option to avoid the penalty, resulting in more people putting money into this 529 plan. This section takes into effect after December 31st of 2023. Also in section 302, there's a reduction in excise tax on certain accumulations and qualified retirement plans. This section reduces the penalty for failure to take required minimum distributions from 50 to 25 percent. Further, if a failure to take a required minimum distribution from the IRA is corrected in a timely manner, as defined under the Act, the excise tax on this failure is further reduced from 25 to 10 percent. So this section is also effective for taxable years beginning after the date of enactment of this Act, so essentially 2023. Section 601 allows simple IRAs to accept Roth contributions too. In addition, aside from grandfathered salaried reduction simplified employee pension plans, under current law, simplified employee pension plans, also known as SEPs, can only accept employer money and not on a Roth basis. This section 601 allows employers to offer employees the ability to treat employee and employer SEP contributions as Roth in whole or in part. The provision under this section is effective for taxable years beginning after December 31st, 2022. So we should see some of this change in 2023 in the plans offered. Section 603 also talks about elective deferrals that are generally limited to regular contribution limits. Under current law, the catch-up contributions to a qualified retirement plan can be made on a pre-tax or Roth basis, if permitted by the plan sponsor. Under this section 603, it provides all catch-up contributions to qualified retirement plans that are subject to Roth tax treatment, effective for taxable years beginning after December 31st of 2023. An exception is provided for employees with compensation of $145,000 or less. Lastly, in section 604, the optional treatment of employer matching or non-elective contributions as Roth contributions. So as, as you know, under current law, plan sponsors are not permitted to provide employer matching contributions in their 401k or their 403b or in the governmental 457b plans on a Roth basis. They're only on a pre-tax basis. Matching contributions before, they were only on a pre-tax basis. And now this section 604 allows defined contribution plans to provide participants with the option of receiving matching contributions on a Roth basis, effective on the date of the enactment of the act. So there will probably be something grossed up in their payroll to give them basis in order to make that Roth contribution work. Lastly, I wanted to talk about qualified education expenses and how to really maximize the tax write-off through the small business or the self-employed individual versus the regular taxpayer who may not be able to get such a benefit. As you know, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act it eliminated the reimbursement of business expenses from the 2018 to the 2025 tax years. Before this, it it meant that people who could itemize already, they had a 2% floor of unreimbursed business expenses that they could deduct on their tax return for expenses that they paid related to their job. Many of my clients, they were writing off mileage if, if they were in sales or education or licensing renewals related to their current job. One of the big advantages of being self-employed, and when I'm talking self-employed, I'm talking about, for simplicity's sake, those who file on a Schedule C, an E, or an F, and have education costs for, for instance, their licensing renewal or other work-related expenses, they can expense these under the Qualified Education Expense Rules. According to regs, Qualified Education Expenses mean cost per training that meets one or both of the standards that the IRS has listed. Standard number one says that education is expressly required by the employer or required by the applicable law or regulations in order that the employee may retain his current employment relationship status or compensation level. The other standard says that the education maintains or improves skills required in the individual's current employment, trade, or business. So these standards are important as they highlight the tax code's criteria that they are to maintain your current status and not to elevate you into a new profession or position. For instance, there have been some tax court cases, which I'll cite later, but like an accountant who wants to go to law school in order to hone on his skills, it can't qualify for that new position. The regs also make clear what is not included, and they stipulate that the qualified education expenses do not include Outlays for schooling are required to meet the pre-existing minimum education requirements for the taxpayer's employment profession or business. Meaning if your job requires a bachelor's degree and you don't have one and you go back to school for that bachelor's degree, if you already have the position, you're not allowed to write off that bachelor's degree. There are also expenses that are not included like costs for a program of study that trains the taxpayer for a new profession or business including being an employee in a new profession or business. Again, highlights the first two standards that talk about only elevating uh, or improving your situation in your current employment status, but can't qualify you for a future or a different position. These educational expenses, they can expand an individual in their current occupational capacity, And it's typically better to write it off if you're self-employed versus trying to take one of the education credits, mainly uh, the lifetime learning credit that's available. Depending on what tax bracket you're in or how you file, that person could only save on federal and state income tax. But whereas if you're self-employed, you're also saving on FICA taxes, which are 15.3%. So there's much bigger benefit going through the self-employed route. There's also limitations, as you know, in the Lifetime Learning Credit, which is 20% up to $2,000 max per year, uh, per per taxpayer. With the educational credits that there are, there's also income limitations, and I don't think most people realize that there are income limitations when they're looking at these education credits. But for instance, for the Lifetime Learning Credit, if the adjusted gross income for a joint filer is above $180,000 then there isn't even a tax credit available to them for education expenses. The tax courts have validated these standards and limitations to what counts as qualified education costs to be deducted by the self-employed individual. Intention is one of the things that the tax court highlights. They look at the cost for education that prepares the taxpayer for a new profession or business, and cannot be qualified education expenses even when the taxpayer does not intend to enter a new field one example or one court case that they highlighted was patrick o'donnell he was a practicing accountant who was not allowed to deduct the expenses for his law degree because although the education undoubtedly improved his skills in his current line of work as an accountant the expenses were not qualified education expenses because they also trained him for a new profession so even the costs to enroll and two tax courses taken as part of a law degree program were disallowed. In fact, the taxpayer in this case had no intention of actually practicing law. Nevertheless, since the education trained him to be a lawyer, and he passed and he got that degree, the costs were not qualified education expenses. So it's important to note that even in this case, if the accountant had simply just taken law courses without actually pursuing the law degree, the costs would apparently have been deductible as qualified education expenses due to that second standard for not qualifying for a new profession. The IRS also allowed, he, they did allow a practicing attorney deduct the cost of ex- obtaining a master's degree in taxation, according to the private letter ruling, PLR 911-2003. The IRS concluded that the degree improved the skills required in the taxpayer's current business of being a lawyer, and therefore satisfied standard number two without training him for a new profession or business. Therefore, the IRS did allow those costs to be deducted. Important to note that pursuing an undergraduate degree, like I said, is not allowed, and then you must also be working in your profession or field. There is some discussion from the courts about MBA costs, but ultimately, you know, if, as long as you're improving your skill to do your current job, the IRS will allow those as qualified education expenses. Hey, thanks for listening today, and you can find today's links in the show notes below for the podcast. If you like this podcast, then please hit subscribe and add a five-star rating so that other people can find and listen as well. Feel free to contact me below and let me know your ideas for a future tax cast.